From Church on Morgan, a United Methodist congregation whose desire is to be a reminder of the beauty of God and each other. This podcast is a collection of Sunday teachings inspired by the Revised Common Lectionary and recorded weekly in Raleigh, North Carolina. And now, a moment of silence before this episode begins. Hey, my name's Sam. I'm part of the team at Church on Morgan. And before we dive in, I want to offer a heads up on what you're about to hear. This powerful teaching is from our guest and friend, Jason Miller. He's teaching on loss and grief and hope. I want to let you know that this sermon includes a story on the topic of suicide. If you or someone you know are at risk of self-harm, please call the 988 Suicide and Crisis Hotline by dialing 988. As always, but especially today, we encourage you to process this teaching in community. And our team is always available to come alongside you if you're not sure where to turn. You can email Tim, who leads our care ministry, at tim.russell at churchonmorgan.org. Let's join in now. This is a reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. And he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. God. Amen. Uh, I'm thrilled to be with you all. Uh, Like Sam said, my name's Jason. Uh, My friends call me Jay, so you can call me Jay. Uh, I really like coming to church on Morgan. Nobody does hipster liturgy like you guys do. That's a compliment, uh, but I'm really thrilled to be here. And today I thought I would uh, lift out of that list of blessings from Jesus, just one of them, and help us to settle down into it for a moment. And the particular beatitude or blessing that I want to draw on uh, comes to us today because I think not only is it the case that every season of human experience brings with it some losses, but in particular the last few years seem to have brought some inordinate losses for us, not just individually, but collectively, and our, our experience of a pandemic life, of the economic uncertainties that have come with that, of the changes that it brought, of some of the political strife that we felt. Um, every season of human life brings with it losses, but I feel that perhaps we've been dealing with an inordinate amount right now. Um, you may have lost uh, a dream for your future that doesn't look the way that it used to look. You may have lost a relationship, and where there was once that deep connection, there just isn't there anymore. Uh, A lot of us have lost um, versions of faith that we've actually had to leave behind for one reason or another. And you might feel like you've stepped into a better, deeper, richer, truer thing. You might have evolved, and that's good, but that doesn't mean that you haven't lost something along the way. Because for things to evolve, other things have to die, right? And then, of course, there's the actual uh, loss of a loved one that you might encounter, um, which brings its own very unique, peculiar pain. And so with all of that in the background, 
I thought today we would uh, just try to hear this blessing from Jesus when he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Uh, it strikes me that for Jesus to speak of mourning and lament is for Jesus to draw on a really deep well of wisdom that he and his people would have known for centuries. And the particular well that I'm talking about is the book of Psalms, this book of prayers that they traveled with through their history. Uh, there's some interesting commentary on the Psalms. Uh, one guy many, many centuries ago said the Psalms are like a mirror showing us every part of ourselves. Another commentator says they're like an anatomy of the soul showing you every part of that inner experience that we have in spirit and in faith. And uh, these Psalms, they have kind of particular forms to them. So we're gonna do a little bit of biblical studies stuff and then we're gonna kind of come back to the heart of all of this if y'all are up for that. Uh, there's a scholar named Gunkel, which is a great name. Uh, Gunkel is German, if you couldn't tell. And Gunkel observed like 100 years ago, there's basically three kinds of psalms in that book of prayers. He says there's a bunch of psalms that are psalms of praise. These are really straightforward. They say things like, God, you're great. And you may not like be feeling, God, you're great. That may not be the move that you make when you wake up in the morning. But if you're living in a moment in time where everything kind of fits together for you, uh, Google says that's the kind of experience that's being described there, where up is up and down is down and the world basically fits together and you know your place within it. And there's a lot of psalms that express that by saying, God, you're great. And then there's another category of psalms that are not praise, they're thanksgiving. And they start by sounding the same. They start by saying, God, you're great. But they say, God, you're great because you did something to put my feet back on solid ground after a period of disruption or loss. And lots of prayers that start out, God, you're great because you brought me back to solid ground. And then there's a third form of psalm, and these are psalms of lament. These are the ones that bleed, that ache, that cry out. They beg God to deliver. Uh, we read one of those already this morning from Psalm 22. God, God, why have you forsaken me? Now, it's interesting if you look at all the psalms that qualify as praise and you add them up in the book of Psalms, and then all the psalms that qualify as lament and you add them up in the book of Psalms, and then all the psalms that qualify as thanksgiving, and you try to figure out which category is trafficked in the most in that book. Curiously, by far, overwhelmingly, the kinds of prayers that are most often prayed in the psalms are psalms of lament, of loss. Let me give you just a taste of this. Here's a few examples. Uh, so for example, from Psalm 44, the psalmist says to God, you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. Or how about this? Uh, you've shaken the land and torn it open. Mend its fractures for its quaking. You've shown your people desperate times. Or this. We are given no signs from God. No prophets are left. And none of us knows how long this will be. Now, by the way, I don't know like when the last time is that you did like popcorn prayer in a group. Like where you like sat around and just prayed what's on your heart. But I dare you sometime like in your little circle to be like, Lord, you've made us a haunt for jackals. <laughs> And just see what kind of reaction you get, right? And we don't often openly lament like that. It's not very comfortable for most of us. And whether it's a church circle or a group of friends or a, a family system around a dining table, a lot of the spiritual communities that we live in day to day aren't super comfortable with these forms of lament. But in the Psalms, they're the primary mode of prayer, which perhaps is why Jesus so confidently can say to us, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Now, if you look at those Psalms more specifically and you take some of those commentators seriously when they say that the Psalms show you something of your soul and you're trying to figure out, well, then what is it that they show us when you look at them? You'll notice that in prayers of lament, there's a very particular form they all follow. It's really simple. Every prayer of lament pretty much in the book of Psalms, it starts with lament, 
like what you just heard, God, you've made us a haunt for jackals. They name either poetically or directly what they've lost or what they are complaining about to God. And then after they name the lament, they turn to praise. And I don't like that. Uh, I remember like bumping into this when I was in grad school doing Bible study stuff as pastors do and like discovering that that's the form that they take. And for me, it just dragged up all this baggage that I have around religious spaces that give quick lip service to loss and lament and then try to move on way too quickly to like put a smile on your face and be hopeful and trust God and all that stuff. And the thing is, like I believe in all those things. Like it's good to have a good attitude and it's good to trust God, but it feels too much like spiritual bypassing to me. You know, like, like the kind of like religious cultures that put that on you and maybe well-intended, maybe trying to help you feel hopeful, but in fact, it ends up being that kind of like sentimental, sappy, faux greeting card spirituality that doesn't actually work in the real world, you know? Like, like, like the kind of spirituality that would cause somebody when you've suffered or when you've lost something, and though they may be well-intended, to cause them to say something to you that trivializes the fact that you've been shattered by what you lost, You've been there, right? Somebody like well-intended comes up to you and tries to slap some kind of spiritual platitude on the aching place inside you and it just doesn't work. And I've met people who can make this quick move from honest lament to honest praise authentically and I love that for them. But for most of us, most of the time, what I find happening is that we've been told you're supposed to do that and so you do it trying to be obedient or pious or faithful and you leave your own heart behind and then you wonder why you can't find your way back to it. So I did not like this feature in these psalms until I remembered something else that's really true when you're studying sacred texts, which is that they often express in microcosm something that takes like much longer, that stretches out over a much longer period of time or over, or over different spaces in your life. If you know that and you, you don't then let the sort of quick movement on the page try to force you into a quick movement of the soul, if you leave that behind and then you just observe that on these pages of prayer over and over again, these psalmists suggest that there's a connection between acts of lament and a capacity for praise, you might just ask, well, then what is the connection? And have you ever experienced that? Have you ever felt that in your life? And in particular, uh, there's one experience in my life that has been teaching me about this. Uh, so let me tell you about my friend, Alex. Uh, Alex and I met in college, and I immediately discovered a person who was like effortlessly cool, and unfailingly kind. Uh, and after college, I bought this shabby old house in South Bend with three bedrooms and had seven friends move in. And we did our best to sort of impersonate a frat house. We'd gone to a very conservative Christian college, so we were trying to make up for it after college <laughs> with a, a general sort of lifestyle that I'm still really proud of. Uh, Alex and I would sit on the roof of that house and smoke like really crappy convenience store cigars. <laughs> I smoke better cigars now, don't worry. Um, We'd go to this pub downtown. Again, we were trying to catch up on all the beer consumption that we missed out on while attending that Christian college. So we'd go to this little pub called Fiddler's Hearth every Monday night, just the two of us, and we'd get a pint. And we'd have all the kind of conversations that you have in your 20s, right? You're kind of like working out what you want in life, and you're shedding some of the religious baggage of your upbringing, but you're trying to figure out what parts of that to bring forward with you. There's some like adolescent angst wrapped up in all that stuff too. Uh, and through all of that, like, I remembered um, that he's the kind of friend that while he could be the life of the party, he was also like a really good companion for those conversations, you know. Uh, in those conversations, I sensed that he had this like big energy that he wanted to give to the world and he was trying to figure out how to give it to the world. And then one day I get home and he's waiting for me and he wants to show me that he thinks he's found it. 
And he takes me upstairs to his room and on the computer desktop, he shows me the website for this fledgling nonprofit whose mission was to promote activism and awareness on behalf of the child soldiers in Joseph Kony's war in Central Africa. You could just see how lit up he was and I had a pretty clear sense that we were about to lose him to that mission. And so sure enough, uh, he packs up and moves out to San Diego. And his job there eventually after interning was he was one of the people that helped this organization reach out to artists, like music artists, rock stars who would then use their platforms to help drive awareness of their cause. And so like before I know, I'm getting dispatches from Alex and he's on tour buses and in backstage green rooms with like my favorite rock stars. And it seems like everybody fell in love with that same effortless, cool and unfailing kindness. Uh, one day while he's out there on the road, I get this package in the mail, I wasn't expecting anything and I open it and there's no real note, it's just a book. It's a copy of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. And I'm flipping through, and this is a book written by a philosopher who, among other things, talks about friendship. And he says there's different kinds of friendship. There's the friendship where you kind of use each other, you kind of just kind of take what you can get out of each other. And then there's the best version of friendship, he said, is the friendship of the good or the friendship of virtue, where you see in your friends something that you admire and you just want to see more of that drawn out of them. You're, like you're invested in that virtue and their life. And all he had done was drawn a, a bracket around that paragraph and an asterisk next to it, which was like a very typically Alex way of doing something really, really kind, you know? Uh, eventually, uh, Alex fell in love. Uh, Beth, the woman that he would marry, was in Nashville, so he ends up moving to Nashville, Tennessee. Then he starts asking me kind of cryptically, like if I will be in Nashville on certain dates, which I finally figured out was his way of trying to get me to officiate the wedding. And so eventually I find myself on this beautiful uh, afternoon in Tennessee, outdoors under this massive old tree where I'm there kind of helping Beth and Alex make their vows to one another. Uh, not long after that, as happy as I was for him at that wedding day, I was even happier for him when I got a text from him. Uh, it says, hola amigo, smiley face. Thought you'd want to see the newest mini member of our family. And then there was a picture of the ultrasound for their first kid. So we like celebrate over the phone. And after Alex had sort of lived this big life out there in the world, I could sense the kind of joy that he felt and digging some roots and settling down and creating a family. Uh, which made the call that I got a little while later um, even harder. Uh, another friend, Matt, texted me and said, hey man, you have a minute. And I call Matt and I'm in my car and he says, are you alone? I say, yeah. Uh, and then he tells me that Alex had died by suicide. And like, I can just remember the words like bouncing off my skull, right? There was like no recognition in me to match that news. Like I, I couldn't comprehend it. I went super numb. Uh, that week I had to travel to New York for work. And so I'm walking through Manhattan with a buddy of mine who's on our staff and then somebody else there in the city. And I can picture exactly where I am uh, walking down those streets where the, the numbness all of a sudden wore off and this just tidal wave of grief, like nausea, just like rose up inside me and I excuse myself and go back to the hotel room and it just begins to overtake me. And I remember thinking that I didn't know it was possible to hurt this badly. I didn't know grief could be this violent, you know. Uh, a little while later, I make my way down to Nashville for Alex's funeral where um, Beth had asked me to, to give his eulogy. And it's the night before the funeral and I'm sleeping on the couch of a buddy's house in Nashville, and I have this yellow legal pad in front of me. <laughs> just blank. I was trying to figure out, like, what do you say, you know? Um, 
I wanted to, um, I wanted to honor Alex. Um, I wanted to honor Beth. I wanted to honor the child they were carrying. Um, and I knew this would be kind of a strange, a strange congregation gathered with people from all over the world in this room, and I wanted to do something of service to them. Uh, I've been a preacher my whole adult life, um, and you, know, you develop these muscle memory instincts for how to react to certain situations, and I could feel them trying to kick in. But the problem is those instincts as a preacher are often like, I want to explain something. I want to help you find the coherence in something. I want you to help you find your footing in something. And like those instincts tried to kick in, but I could just feel how like wildly inappropriate that would be. That there would be something dishonorable, that trying to make sense of something as awful as this, right? And so after sort of like trying to like set those intentions down and find something else to move toward uh, as I prepared for that funeral, I think I just, through prayer or through God's grace, or I don't know, I, I just realized my only job tomorrow is to give witness to what was lost. I'm, I'm just going to try to give witness to who Alex was. And I just have to trust that that's all I can do tomorrow and that's all we need to do tomorrow. And I'm not going to be able to fix anything or heal anything. I can't um, manage the pain in that room. I'm just going to try to give witness to it. And so the next day, uh, I walk into this large old church on the campus of Vanderbilt and I have Beth on my arm, and then I'm actually um, walking Coloco, the German shepherd, down the aisle with me, um, who Alex had loved as much as he had loved anyone or anything. And Coloco just seemed to stand vigil there for Beth as if she knew why she was there, you know. Um, and the time came for me to get up and speak, and I get up and I turn around, and I... Um, every pastor I know has seen hard rooms and preached in hard moments. Uh, me too. But I've just never seen a sea of anguish quite like that, you know. But I just try to remind myself, like, your only job here is give witness. And then somehow try to trust that these other mysteries will do their work, you know? Um, so I told him about Alex and about those cheap convenience store cigars on the roof and those Monday night conversations at the pub. I told him about uh, my dog, Jack. I had this 90-pound golden retriever when we were all living together. Best dog ever. I told him about how it was so peculiar and completely predictable. Um, Alex could walk into a room where my dog was, or my dog could walk into a room where Alex was, and it didn't matter what else was going on. It didn't matter who else was there. It was Alex, always Alex, and only Alex that my dog Jack would run toward to offer a particularly inappropriate canine display of dominance and affection. <laughs> and yes, I'm telling you, Jack would hump Alex, just mercilessly. <laughs> only Alex. It's like Everybody had a crush on Alex, even my dog, you know? Um, I told him about, you know, the passion that he found for the work that he had done. I told him about what it was like to watch him fall in love with Beth. Um, sorry. Um, I told him about, um, I'm a little extra tender, because um, a couple days ago I was hanging with Alex's son in Nashville. Um, and I told him about how he'd already become a loving father to little Alexander in uh, Beth's womb. And together, we just told Alex, like, we miss you like hell, and we love you. Uh, a couple weeks later, the sort of the mourning and the celebration of Alex would continue out in San Diego. The organization that he'd worked with, a lot of the people were still in San Diego there. And they wanted to do something to honor Alex as well. And I wasn't going to go. Um, the week after Alex's funeral in Nashville, we were on the 
waters of Lake Erie scattering my grandfather's ashes. In between the two, it just felt like too much. And frankly, like, it felt inefficient to go to San Diego. Like, I didn't have the money for the flights, and like, I'd already like, been in Nashville for like a week for that part of the funeral, and mourning can feel inefficient. It, it can start to just feel like, why, why would we do that? Why don't we just get back to practical matters, right? So I wasn't going to go, uh, but then one of the people who was organizing the events out in San Diego asked if I was coming and if I would say a few words, and so I booked my flights. I go out to San Diego, and one of the rituals that we enacted there was uh, from surf culture. Alex had become a really avid surfer while he was there. And so we did what's called a paddle out, which is basically a bunch of you gather on the beach with surfboards. Uh, and we did that there in La Jolla uh, on a day whose dark skies kind of matched the mood that we were in. And dozens of us um, paddled out there on the water where we kind of felt the ocean surging beneath us. We kind of clustered in this like improvised flotilla where we all kind of held each other on those, on those surfboards and we told stories about Alex and we sang songs. Um, miraculously, Beth made it out there. She was very pregnant at that point. But on a kayak, she was there and she had this lei that she was wearing in honor of Alex. And so after some time in that cluster, we sort of fanned out into a ring on the water and Beth took the lei and threw it out into the middle there and we dug our hands into the ocean and splashed toward it in an act of love. Um, and I remember being out there on the water and I, I had this like vague, you know when you can see something in your peripheral vision, but like if you try to turn and look at it directly, you can't see it, but like it's right over there, right? I had this like vague sense that something about what we were doing out there was going to be connected to some of my own healing. I just couldn't figure out how or why. I just had this vague sense that it was important to be there. It was important to mourn. It was important to enact this grief. It was important to put our heart and our bodies into a ritual that would name the void that we were feeling there. It just felt like something was important about that. And then that night, I think I got a glimpse of what was so important about it. Um, so this is the part of the story that is um, awkward for me to tell because I don't know if it communicates like what it meant to me. I fear this is the part of the story where you write me off as sentimental or a little too woo. Or maybe you wrote me off a long time ago, that's fine. Um, but that night, um, there in La Jolla, like looking out over the ocean, all I can tell you is like the sky was set on fire. I've seen plenty of beautiful sunsets this was like something different. It felt like electricity in the air. It felt like, it felt like something in the universe had been like cracked open for a moment and like a secret had been revealed. And like I remember finding myself like shouting and weeping on the beach there as I like took this, this vision in. And it, was, I, it almost felt like if I didn't shout, I would like combust. And I wasn't weeping out of sadness in that moment. It was more like I was weeping for a sheer sense of fullness and presence. It was almost as if the same part of me that felt the, the, the loss, the, the really deep part of me that felt the loss was now feeling something else, like was sensing that something else was true, you know? And this to me goes back to those psalms that begin in lament and then move toward praise. And this is my best theory, and I know we're kind of at the mysterious part of all of this, but this is my best theory about what's going on with all of this. So uh, first of all, those psalmists, when you read through them, one thing you, you get really clear is that they had a way of 
conceiving the world around them that's a little different than, than we do. Uh, some theologians say that they had what's called a sacramental imagination, which is just a way of saying really that like to understand or to believe or to experience that in the material around you and the bodies around you and the objects around you and the world around you, there's more there than just those bodies and that material and the things that you can taste and touch and see and smell and hear. That somehow in all the things that we taste and touch and smell and see and hear, that somehow in all of that, there's more there. They say it like this like in the Psalms here uh, in chapter 19. They say, the heavens declare the glory of God. Glory is a big word there, you know? Uh, or how about this? Uh, you, you, God, have made humanity a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory. Like, there's some kind of divine glory. And you... And the people you love, your neighbors, your enemies, there's a glory there and an honor there. Or this, in Psalm 42, the writer says, deep calls to deep. And I've sometimes taken this to mean that there's a depth within you that senses the depth around you. And I think that depth is more than um, the simple material realities of our lives. I think it goes further than that. And I've come to believe that it's this capacity within you, the deep within you that senses the deep around you, that that's where some of the mourning comes from. Because I don't think to lose someone is to simply deal with an inconvenient loss of psychological attachment, even though I think that's also happening. <laughs> I think something deeper is going on there, that the deep within you that knew the deep within them is crying out. Because it knew a kind of glory in that person, that God had put something beautiful and divine and unending in that person. At least that's what the soul felt when it encountered it. And then it feels like it has lost those things. But when we turn toward acts of mourning, rather than numbing it or ignoring it or denying it or making ourselves too busy to think about it, when we give witness to what we have lost, it's almost as if in that very act, you're reinforcing your connection to the deep within you. Because that, that, that's where the grief comes from. And that by reinforcing that connection, perhaps for a moment, we have an uncommon capacity to see and discover that maybe the glory was never lost. I don't know if it'll make sense to you when I tell you that something about that experience that night on the beach has put in my bones a feeling, a conviction that Alex is held and um, uh, healed in the love of God. That anything good Anything of God can never really be destroyed. It might perhaps be transformed. It, it might no longer be held in the, in the concrete details in which we originally encountered it, but I don't think it could be destroyed. How could it be? If it's of God, I, I don't know that it could be destroyed. And I think it's through the, these rituals and acts of mourning that we give ourselves the, the possibility, not formulaically, not like mechanically, but the possibility that in these acts of mourning and rituals of loss, we will put ourselves in the position to discover that the glory that we yearn for is still with us. Um, this is not just a word for personal loss, by the way. This is also a word for the social and systemic things that we are facing right now. This is why it's important to hold candlelight vigils in the wake of mass shootings, to give witness to what was lost. This is why it's important to say the names of those whose lives have been lost in discriminatory and unjust abuses of power, it's important to say their names. These are acts of giving witness so that collectively we might become the kind of people who perhaps are a little better at honoring the glory in those lives rather than allowing them to be extinguished so easily. These are big collective reasons for doing that stuff too. Now, if all this sounds a little weird, um, yes, it is. <laughs> the beatitude blessings are weird. 
I think anybody who teaches these as like straightforward prescriptions for pious people has missed out on the strangeness of them, and the strangeness of them is a key to their meaning. Um, when Jesus says blessed are, whether he says blessed are the poor in spirit or blessed are those who mourn, the word blessed there, he's probably speaking Aramaic, hearkening back to Hebrew, or he says something like ashray. If you look through all the Hebrew scriptures for that word ashray, for blessedness, what you will discover overwhelmingly is that for those people, they imagine that blessedness is a word describing people who experience a divine insurance policy against suffering. That's what it is to be blessed in the original imagination of these people to be righteous or virtuous and therefore to be protected, right? Uh, the gospel's written in Greek, uh, so when you actually read the, the manuscript, it says not ashray, but, but makarios. That's the word there that gets translated blessed for us. And there's a philosopher named Dallas Willard who says that that word in the Greek imagination means uh, the blissful existence of the gods. Like, you know, up there in like global first class on the plane, right, where the rest of us are back in economy basic, you know, like just, just loving life, life's like really good, no needs, no discomforts for them. So when Jesus stands up and says, blessed are, you can imagine everybody leaning forward, wanting to hear, how do I get the divine insurance policy against suffering? How do I live the blissful existence of the gods? And then he says, blessed are those who have a poverty within them, who have been robbed in spirit. He says, blessed are those who have lost something and who turn toward that loss in acts of mourning. He says, blessed are those who have had their strength bridled by either circumstance or systems, which is a way of reading the word meek. He says, blessed are those who ache for things to be made right within them or around them, a blessing for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if you think that's straightforward, you're not paying attention. <laughs> but I've come to find great comfort um, in the strangeness of these blessings because I think they point at mysteries not unlike uh, the Eucharist that we will turn to in a moment. Jesus says, like, you're going to meet the love of God in a little bit of bread and this cup. That's strange to me. Um, but the longer I live, I'm realizing strange is like the only thing I trust. Because if it's not strange, it's probably too um, small for the mysteries that you and I are waiting in with every moment of our lives. And so... Um, I came here today to hope that you hear the blessing for you as you mourn. And whether you've lost a dream or an economic arrangement or a relationship or the actual loved one that's no longer here, uh, I hope you hear Jesus sort of like whispering to you saying, it's okay to turn bravely toward that for a moment. And if you do, you may find that the glory is still with you. Thank you for joining today. If this episode has been meaningful to you, would you take a moment to share it with a friend? To support this ministry or learn more about our community, visit us at churchonmorgan.org.